Mark, this, uh, together, if you could open your Bibles at Mark chapter 6, please. We're going to be looking at, we're only going to look at verses 1 to 6 this morning. It was originally my intention for us to look at verses 1 to 13, but I decided uh, based on just what I felt um, was coming from the first six verses that we would look at those together instead. Um, So Mark chapter 6, and we're just simply going to read verses 1 to 6 this morning. Mark 6, beginning at verse 1, and we're told this in the gospel. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Where did this man, sorry, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? This is not this carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, were not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus says to them, A prophet is without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. As we journey together through the book of Mark, one of the things which has become increasingly significant to me and has really been pressed on me is how vitally important it is that we see Jesus as clearly as we possibly can. That that is actually one of the most significant issues that lays before every single person who lives and breathes and ever will. Who is Jesus? To them. And so often we think that that only applies to those who don't have a faith in Jesus Christ, that we make and work and pray that they would have that faith in Jesus Christ, and almost then that it's job done and we move on to the next. But that's not discipleship. Discipleship is for all of us to have an increasing understanding of who Jesus is so that we can live in line with what's revealed to us and understood. Jesus is a person that we will never fully comprehend because he is the image of God. He is the fullness of God in bodily perfection, the exact imprint of his nature, as it says in Hebrews. So there is always going to be that element of mystery there, but that ought not to stop us from wrestling, from exploring, from grappling with the Gospels and the, and the New Testament and the Old Testament, everything that points to Jesus to try and understand that little bit more about who he is, about who our God is, about what makes him tick, about how he sees the world, about he, how he wants us to live in response to what has been revealed in Jesus Christ. I heard someone say recently that the next great crisis of the church would be around heresies in Christology. And I think there is an element of truth to that because one of the problems that the church today has is that the truths of who Jesus is and the ethics that he has injected into his church have become almost optional. 
They can be sold away in response to having specific agendas accomplished. I'm afraid that's not holiness. That's negotiation. And it's negotiating what we can't negotiate away. Understanding who Jesus is and what that means for our lives practically and in, a, in, in, in the context of hope is so significant. And I think actually what was really striking me about these verses was how much it has to say about exactly that. And, and that's why I decided just to home in on these first six verses this morning. So let's have a little look at what's going on. The first thing I want us to know is following through the highs and the lows, um, let's note that there's been amazing highs in the preceding chapter. Chapter 5 sees the, the, the woman with the bleeding healed. What an amazing event that was. Chapter 5 sees the demon-possessed man liberated and restored. Chapter 5 sees Tabitha raised from the dead. I don't know about yourselves, but I, I would definitely consider those to be amazing highs. Could you imagine if we got to witness those things, just how incredible and how awestruck we would be uh, and how filled with enthusiasm we would be? And maybe at this point, what the disciples were thinking is, what amazing thing is going to happen here? We've just seen Jesus raise the dead. What's he going to do when he goes home? This is going to be amazing. This is a homecoming. This is Jesus going back home to his own. And this is just going to be an awesome experience for us and for him. Because that was the high. The high was what Jesus has just done and the amazing results of it. And one of the things that's quite striking is for many people, Especially leaders, they would be, I'm going to just tell um, those that I'm leading just to, to go away at this point because this is not going to go very well. I don't really want them to see that because it might discourage them. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, the, the, the disciples follow Jesus in the highs, but they do so when they witness the lows as well. We've all heard the saying, home is where the heart is. And when we think that, we often have some nostalgic idea of what home might be. Maybe it's the place where we're born. Maybe it's the place that we grew up in. Maybe it's the place that we've lived the longest. There is some space, some place that has an imprint of home for each of us. Now, I don't know where that might be for you. Of course, you know that my original home was Fife. The beautiful lands of Fife. Nobody's heckling you. are behaving this morning. You've obviously got it all at your system with Sheena earlier. Um, and for others, it's Dundee. They speak greatly of Dundee. And I will pass no comment there either. Um, or, or, or Ireland or, or, or South Africa. There's so many places. England, there's, there's lots of places where we think and we go there and we think home. We go and we look and we see familiar places. We would often see friends and family and look forward to those occasions. There's a nostalgia for home. And for Jesus, as he goes to the place of which he is known, where the disciples, no doubt, would have anticipated an amazing homecoming, what he gets is a harrowing experience. 
what he gets is rejection. So after the highs of the previous events, you could imagine for the disciples, and maybe even for Jesus himself, this is, this is quite a low. He's gone home. And Jesus says it's not just the town that's rejected him here. Not just the town, his relatives. And even his own household, it says in verse 4. That doesn't sound to me like a very good homecoming. It sounds to me like quite a difficult situation, especially for the disciples to witness after what's just previously happened. They see the low and they see the high. And actually what's important here is Jesus isn't one who is a, who is a false salesman. Jesus is one who is entirely honest about what the path of discipleship represents for those who choose to follow him. Now, one of the weaknesses I think that Christianity has today is those who think they have to oversell what it means to be a Christian. Have you ever heard statements such as, if you follow Jesus, everything will be okay. You will have a life of blessing and prosperity and abundance because of Jesus and what he has done for you. And then somebody makes a commitment to Christ and all of a sudden discovers, actually, there are times it's really, really hard. There are times it's bruising. There are times we're pushed to the edge of our strength and we don't really know what's going on. But actually, this isn't flawed discipleship. That's true discipleship. Because that's the very forms of discipleship that we see Jesus exposing people to here. There is the incredible highs when you see what the power of God and you're left in wonder and awe. But there are the lows as well because we live in a sinful and fallen world and at times that leaves its mark on us. There is both. That is what true discipleship is. And Jesus isn't one who is trying to sell this idea that it's all rosy and simple and easy. Is one that shows that even for himself he's going to experience rejection. He's going to experience the, the unpleasantness of that. And he would then teach that no student is greater than their master. As they persecuted Jesus, so they would his followers as well. So it will be for us. And there's often this mistaken idea that we can come to as Christians that if we are in God's will, everything is a blessing, everything is simple, everything is easy. But at times, the straight paths that God sets for us aren't a stroll in the park. They're difficult and they are challenging. One of, the, one of the ways I learned that was when I was at college and I expected when I went to the Baptist college, I was doing God's will, everything would work out nice and simple and I would just get time to study. It didn't work out like that at all. I had two kids who never slept for the night for the entire time and multiple other things going on that made me feel at times that I was at the lowest I could ever remember being. And it was at that point when I, that penny dropped and I realized that just because we're in God's will doesn't mean that life will comply. The fact that we're in God's will means we will have God's strength to get through whatever is before us. And the two things are very different. True discipleship means we know that we will have God's strength to get through the challenges that life will throw our way. Challenges like we see here. Flawed discipleship means we don't understand why the challenges are there in the first place. We, why has this happened? How could God do this to me? Where is he? These are all misunderstandings that we all adopt because we secretly want and hunger for that simple life. I do. But that's not what's offered. What's, not, what's offered is ultimately a victorious life. 
And not through our skills and wares, but through Jesus' work and his power with us. So one of the really important questions then is, is our idea of Jesus, our understanding of Jesus, one that inspires hope and confidence when the hard times come? Or is it one where we leave him in the corner because actually we're not sure what use he is to us? Seeing Jesus, this is one of the most significant things that we have to ponder and wrestle with because what you see here is a town of people, people who knew Jesus, people who he grew up with, people who he learned his trade with, people who no doubt he built tables and chairs for because he was a carpenter. They saw, but they couldn't see. They saw Jesus, but they couldn't actually see Jesus. They saw what they thought they knew and couldn't respond to what was actually happening because these questions that they ask are actually very significant and very telling questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that is given to him? How are mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Were not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Now, of course, a lot of the times we say, oh, that proves that Jesus has brothers and sisters. Well, yes, it does. But we're not going to focus on that because that's not actually the key point here. That's just dealing with um, some of the quirks that Christianity decided to create later on. Um, what, what the significant here, thing here is that the questions that they're asking when they're talking about wisdom, when they're talking about mighty acts, these words that they're using actually reflect that they understand that what, is, what they're hearing and what, Jesus, what they're hearing that Jesus has done is stuff which represents that God's power is working through him. A quote, and now this is from the, the World uh, Biblical Commentary, it says, I don't know if you can read it, I tried to resize it, but, but PowerPoint got very angry whenever I put the cursor anywhere near it and started flinging all the boxes everywhere, so I just had to give up. It says, the mighty works are events that proclaim God's acts on behalf of God's people. Therefore, Jesus' teaching and his work lay a claim on his audience to recognize that God was at work in him in a new way, inaugurating God's sovereign reign in the lives of those who would respond. But the townspeople reject this claim because they knew who Jesus really was. So when they speak about the mighty acts and the wisdom, they're speaking about things that they know are godly. They're speaking about things that they know would mean that God is working through somebody. But they can't accept that this is the case with Jesus because they know him. This is the carpenter. This is the brother of these guys. This is his sisters over here. This is his mother over here. We can't accept that this person God would work through. And this is why they take offence at him. They take offence because what they thought they knew becomes a stumbling block. They took offence because assumption is the mindset that caused them to miss the wonder of what God was really doing. And that really challenged me because it made me realise that what we think we know about Jesus really matters. Where our misplaced assumptions are really matters. The conclusions that we come to really matter. The humble and truth is, we too will carry 
a lot of assumptions. But my challenge is, do we allow those to be challenged? Do we look into God's words and to the stories about Jesus with humility, hungering and yearning to know who our God is, or do we look into these to justify the conclusions that we've already taken? Substantial difference between the two views. We must hunger to know who our God is, to yearn after him. Because we have the comfort of knowing that if we do so, he will reveal himself to us. What do we think? Do we allow the amazing works and the wisdom and the power of Jesus to speak into our understanding and to continue to form our thinking? For if we don't, we end up with a Jesus that might just be too small to carry us through the lows or not worth enough to stay close to when the highs come along. But the Jesus in the Bible is worth more than anything can offer. He's worth enough for us to actually lay down our lives for. And he's powerful enough to carry us through anything that can be thrown our way. Because as we have sung repeatedly this morning, he is the name above all names, the power above all powers. He is the glorious one and the victorious one. But is that who the Jesus is in our minds, in our hearts? Because what's been revealed here and what, what they, these people are picking up on but refusing to accept is that the reign of God is in Christ. Jesus is the redemptive event that was long foretold. This is why the miracles are happening. It's God's power flowing through Jesus Christ and amazing things are happening. Things that were long foretold, things that were promised are being happening. Captives are being set free. The sick are being healed. The enslaved are being liberated. New hope has arrived in the world and it is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And these people don't know what to do with that, so they reject it because it all comes through Jesus Christ. And this is the problem ultimately that they face. Jesus, they look and they make their decision and they, they are wrong. And because of this, they are locked out of all the stuff that God is doing because the stuff that God is offering to the world, the hope, the power, the liberation, the transformation, it can only be found in one name. It can only be found in one person. And that is Jesus Christ. And he alone. So when they reject Jesus, they're rejecting everything that God is doing through Jesus. Some things don't change, do they really? Today we're still in that situation where people are wrestling with the idea of who Jesus is and they draw snap conclusions about who they think he is. And they either see the hand of God in him or they miss it completely. There is no real middle ground there as we see with these people. For he either is the power of God and the redemption of the world or he is not. It's not a mixed bag. It's one or the other. Uh, I love um, C.S. Lewis when, he, when he's wrestling with this stuff and this is a quote from Mere Christianity. He says this, I am not trying here to pretend to anyone Sorry, I'm not trying here to prevent anyone. Let me try that again. Third time is, uh, I am trying here to prevent anyone 
saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and has said and has said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thought that he was a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either he was and is the son of God or a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he didn't intend to. What we think about Jesus is truly that significant. It's significant enough to save souls and transform lives, but it's significant enough to give those who are followers of Jesus Christ the power and the hope and the holiness to walk through this life and glorify God by the kind of life that we live. But we need to continually gain those revelations of Jesus Christ. So who this morning do we see? We, of course, will see perhaps Jesus the Saviour. Maybe for some of us this morning, you're thinking, Jesus is Saviour, what does that mean? What's he saving me from exactly? Perhaps maybe you're wondering why I'm prattling on about a redemptive event and, well, what does that mean? Well, let me explain that for just a little second. God promised a Saviour into this world who would set people free from illness, from demon possession, from all that would oppress us, but ultimately from the greatest struggle of all, which is what we know as sin. Sin is the thing which compels us to do that which is wrong. All of us, or so many of us, have the best intentions, and we, de we desire to do something positive and good, but yet we find ourselves so frequently not doing that. And that's what that power is within us. And it, the, the, the destructive power of it, sin... Well, we see the destructive evidence of it on the world, but it destroys relationships. And worse, it destroys a relationship with God because God is holy. And if we are not, we can't know him. We are separate from him. But God wouldn't leave it there. Instead, he made these audacious promises that something would happen which would change all that. There would be a servant on whom the iniquity of humanity and the sin of all of us would be laid upon. And that person became Jesus. When he went to that cross, he created a new hope for humanity because he defeated sin. He defeated its reign. He defeated death itself. And what he offers us, and this is what I talk about a redemptive event, what he offers us is freedom from sin, forgiveness from it, a transformed life. And all he asks for is faith that we would place our hope in him. So perhaps that's the part about Jesus that we need to encounter this morning, but we also need this power of God to be a reality in our lives. Many of us here this morning would say we know Jesus. We have placed our life, our hope, our faith in his hands and we trust him and we have seen his promises become alive in our lives. We have felt his presence and his guidance in our lives.
But I ask this morning, do you remember the power of Jesus? Do you this morning remember that part of Jesus? And we need to remember that. We need to remember that because that power aims to work through us to see the kingdom of God growing here. Because the amazing news is, and Logan's baptism next week points to this, that that redemptive event continues. God is still 2,000 years saving souls and bringing people into his kingdom. God, 2,000 years later, is still at work in this world and in vital areas, defeating the reign of the enemy and light is still driving bark back darkness. But if we proceed from here into this world and think that we are the vulnerable ones, We're not. Light triumphs over darkness. Jesus has triumphed over the enemy. Sin has been defeated and Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand. And we are the people who can call upon his name. But do we? When we see evil, when we see injustice, when we see people suffering, when we see people ensnared in sin, do we pray? Do we, is, that, is that what we think? I know one who I can call upon who can change this situation. Is that what we think? Because that will tell us about whether the Jesus that goes into our week and our understanding of the power of this Christ is still wonder-working power today that's relevant in our lives and where we go. Or whether it's not. But let me give you spoilers. It is. Jesus still reigns. He is still at the right hand of God. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. And he sends each of us to be those that that power still works through so that his kingdom still continues to grow so that we can be salt, so that we can be light. And you know what? It's very easy for us to get disheartened because we look at the world today and I don't know about yourselves, but I'm often thinking... It's turning to chaos. You see, the disasters that's happening in the Amazon, 20% of what we need to actually live could be destroyed. It produces 20% of our oxygen. So as, as human beings, we think, let's set it on fire. Sin. You see it right there. It's not very bright either. We see it flowing through so much of what's happening and the rhetoric that's used in our cultures these days. It's so easy for us to think, oh, it's all just going to go disastrously bad. But no, we don't need to think that way because we have a Jesus who's powerful. And before any power that we will stand before or any power that we see on the TV or any power that we read about on the internet, he is greater. He is a name above all names, the power above all powers. But we need to keep hold of that and see the world through that lens and see Jesus through that lens and live that way because when Jesus is seen Great things will happen. Okay, just, just read the top one. Apparently, I forgot to um, do the little animated bit here. But what you see with Jesus is one who is rejected at home, and that's hard. Hard for the disciples, and it's hard for him. But what's seen here of Jesus isn't enough for his power to shine through and bring transformation. And Jesus is astounded by it. He marvels. At their, at their lack of faith. 
It says that in verse 6, he marveled by cause of their unbelief. This was his home. And they would reject him because they fought. They knew. That think you know, that's, there's a risk right there. Jesus is astounded by that. And it actually struck me that, you know, I wonder how many of us here have experienced rejection from those that we love, those that we've trusted, those that maybe we would have had as part of what makes our world feel like home. There's a strange comfort and knowing that the God of all things knows that type of rejection too. Here it gets as close as family. Strange comfort that God knows those kinds of pains. There is a God who actually shares in those experiences. And maybe for some of us this morning, what we need to hear is that if we take them to him, he will walk us through and walk with us through those pains. Another thing we need to see, and which is vital from this, is the role of faith here. And this is where this quote, again, this is from the World Biblical Commentary. This time I managed to get the WBC in at the end, but it also decided to punish me with a little box with L and SEP. I don't quite know what that means, but um, it is what it is. So the quote says this, Jesus' inability to do any mighty works points to the nature of his ministry. Their unbelieving response precluded his working among them since his work was a redemptive event. Jesus did not come as a magician or a miracle worker to display and dazzle his audience. His words and his work were from God. Those who rejected this inherent claim on his ministry could not experience God's redemptive work on their behalf. Therefore, while faith does not represent the necessary cause for the effect of a miracle, miracles do not take place in the absence of faith. And I think that's actually quite a significant quote when it comes to understanding the role that faith has and the role that Jesus' work has. Jesus' miracles, his power, was intended to show the redemptive working of God through him and the difference that he the person of Jesus Christ would make to the world. So when his own, his own town, his own family choose then to reject him, they reject also this power that God is working through him. And the fact that it says that some accept he laid his hands on a few doesn't change actually that understanding. What it, of course, will indicate is that in it, like in every other situation, there is an exception to the norm. Some people in the village are coming to Jesus and displaying that kind of faith, but the majority of the village, sadly, are, are, are avoiding that. They have misunderstood who Jesus is, and that's significant. Those who reject it's his ministry cannot experience his power, and it seems like a simple truth, and it is because the kingdom can only be found through its king. As Jesus says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other places, he speaks about how he is the gatekeeper. And of course, we often think, well, that means that none of the sheep can just bowl and, and run off because he would stop them doing that. But it often means, but it also means that the only way to actually access that is through Jesus Christ. So ultimately, what I'm getting to here this morning is this. 
the most significant thing that matters beyond all else is what we think about Jesus. The most significant thing that matters beyond all else for others is what they think about Jesus. Are we then proclaiming Jesus? This person, the most significant person that there has ever been or ever will be in the amazing works that he has done. This message beyond any other is the one that people need to hear. This message beyond any other is the one, in fact, the only one, that can transform lives and bring hope. And we, remarkably, are the messengers of God. Now, as I say that, I'm not saying tomorrow storm into your work with tracts and Bible verses and hammer people over the head with them. But what I am saying is this. I've often asked the question, where will you be tomorrow at 11 a.m.? And I ask that question because I want, if we happen to look at our clocks at some point around 11 o'clock, we think, oh wait, it's 11 on Monday. William said something about that. And it makes us think, oh yeah, that was about being a disciple and being salt and light and all that kind of stuff. And maybe we just stop for a second and we start to pray for those around us. But what is truly profoundly significant is that the only light that some of the people that you will encounter this week will come for you. The only concepts that they might be developing of Jesus will come through how you act and how you behave and what you say. The only appeal that Jesus is able to make to them might come through you and you never know with prayer and with patience and with integrity and authenticity this week might be the week you get to have that conversation with somebody about who Jesus is. For us, we are the salt. We are the light. And I'm not saying that in, egotist- in any form of egotistical way because that is what our intended purpose is. How salty we are or how bright that light is shining entirely depends on our understanding and closeness to God. But it doesn't change the fact that that is what our intended role is. So I encourage us, don't hide Jesus. Don't hide him by how you live. Be willing to take a stand on what he takes a stand on. But be aware above all that the most important thing that anyone needs and what we need as well is to see Jesus for who he is. Because it's only through that encounter with him that things truly change. So let us seek then to be a people who have that living faith that's evident to those around us, that remembers the wonder working power of Jesus Christ, that seeks to see Jesus revealed through us, but sees the world through that lens that Jesus is the greatest power and that he is good. So when you see this chaos happening on the news or work or wherever it might be and people going through terrible things, we know and we remember that there is one that we can call upon who is the genuine difference maker because he is the powerful one, the name above every other name. And having that hope, having that hope can be world-changing. It's world-changing because Jesus 
lived the embodiment of the power that God had given to him. And then he handed the, the truth of that to the disciples and they changed the world. It's world-changing because we've seen countless examples of saints since then doing the exact same. Whether it's bringing many to faith in Jesus Christ as we have seen people like Billy Graham doing whether it's working in China and transforming things there, as we've seen Hudson Taylor do, whether it's challenging slavery, as we saw um, William Wilberforce do and later Martin Luther King. These things all come from an understanding of Jesus and a hope in the power of Jesus. But we have the baton. It's ours today. Because God is making his appeal through us. So what I want us to do now is to spend a few moments in prayer, asking God for a fresh revelation of his power, asking God to help us and guide us and lead us through our week, asking God to help us to be that salt and light. But that all comes through that hunger and that thirst and that truth of knowing who Jesus is. So we'll just spend a few moments